0: Welcome to Biblio Observatory, a new series of the South Carolina State Libraries podcast, Library Voices SC. I am Yvette Villarreal, Biblio Observatory hostess.
1: And I am Caroline Smith, the Inclusive Services Consultant at the South Carolina State Library. This is a special transmission from Columbia, South Carolina to explore the universe of books and stories that people treasure from their childhood and how those stories defined the lives of people touched by them.
0: And today we welcome Alan Hinnett and he's coming all the way from Sumter to visit Biblio Observatory and share an universe of stories from his childhood. Thank you for being here.
2: Well, thank you for having me. That was very nice of y'all to invite.
0: And, Alan, would you like
1: to tell us a little bit about yourself and what you would like our audience to know about you?
2: Well, when I got out of prison, um, (laughs) okay, sorry. Um, I am from a small town in South Carolina uh, called King Street. It's in Williamsburg County. It's over near Lake City and Florence and between Charleston and all that and I was born in 1951 which means that a lot of my experiences growing up were through a period of 1950 to 1960 in particular and it meant that this was an era when your television set had three channels Um, your telephone if you had one was attached by a wire to the wall. Um, Also that, you know, if you were really good, you had a private line instead of what they called a party line, where you Mm -hmm. would share it with seven or eight or nine other neighbors, which there are a lot of fun stories about how that worked. Um, And of course, no computers or anything like that. You know, you just, you just, you had books, you had some music, you had television when you wanted it and you had the outdoors you know those are primary things you had toys as well of course but um a lot of my family i come from my mother and father both had large families uh, bunches of brothers and sisters and stuff so when i was growing up one of the things that was a critical part of of growing up was here you are with these families, and when families get together, they tell stories. And they talk about things, and they tell about adventures, or something that somebody did, or how funny that is, and then somebody gets mad, and they get an argument, and all that. It's really great family stuff. Mm -hmm. I found that that really began to define me more as a person than pretty much anything else, even though I would be classified as a shy person, particularly coming up. Um I wasn't quite so shy around them. And so it was it was that was my outlook. Uh, and what it means as you become an adult is that you have to take into account things, things like uh, the era in which you're growing up, the Jim Crow era, uh, civil rights era, and uh, as a white person growing up in a county with 70% African American, Um, I was kind of lucky in one way that I I, I wouldn't say that I was heavy, you know, racist, racist, Mm -hmm. but I also know that I was a bigot. Mm -hmm. Okay. Anybody that tells you they weren't or is not telling you the truth, it means that it is a part of your life you have to adjust, understand, and you know, mm-hmm. not participate anymore.
1: Mm-hmm. That takes a lot of difficult self-reflection to uh, be able to very, do that. It's very,
2: it's very tricky, mm-hmm. and I'm, I make a lot of jokes about how I, how, how that happened. But the bottom line is, is that I, I was fortunate to meet a bunch of very good, kind people. Even the ones that maybe were grumpy and stuff like that. That just presented itself as a challenge for me for some reason, and I'm talking about both white and black. But mm-hmm. there were there were terrifying things you could see. You know, um, you know the Christmas parades were always great because the African American high school it was segregation years had this great band. You know that was that was it was a party. It felt like you were in New Orleans once I found out what that was like, and. Then on the flip side, you would have good events going on, and then you would have scary events. Uh, I told Yvette one time when I was about eight years old, uh, there was a great big Ku Klux Klan rally Mm -hmm. right outside of town. Mm -hmm. And we drove out there and sat on the side of the road and watched this thing. And there's something very eerie about seeing this huge, huge, huge um, cross burning. Mm -hmm and these guys marching around, they call them white robes, we, mm-hmm. they look like bedsheets to me. Mm-hmm. Looked like a bad cartoon on some elves or something. But, so, you know, it's one of those lives that you had to come up with a balance. You know, that you have to acknowledge that part of your past so that you can see the other. Mm-hmm. And then you can be grateful for some of the lessons that you were taught whether intentionally or unintentionally i was taught to respect elders and the joke is always that they forgot to tell me that that didn't apply to african americans mm. so that it was all sir and ma'am and like i said before i was i was very fortunate that i was i was able to at least get that and then get the fact of dealing with people i never could talk to somebody like a servant or anything like that it just was wrong, felt wrong, okay? That's kind of a long story about where I came from and what people would like to know about myself, but um, my, my in- information input, uh, I was pretty much a bookworm, mm-hmm. and there was a lot of music in my house, either stereo or, or mono, rather, and, and what was built on the TV, what showed up on the TV, and it was a variety of stuff. Plus on those days radio came on at six o'clock in the morning went off at sunset and it played everything from early in the morning you'd have your farmers report and you'd be listening to old country music and square dance songs and Mm -hmm. then they'd have the little time when kids were going to school and they'd play some rock and roll and then They'd flip back over into uh, easy listening music during the day and stuff like that. So, you had a you had an exposure to different sounds, which I've I've found is just really essential, at least in my life. And as I've looked back over this after Yvette has sent me these things to ponder, um, you know it it. I suddenly realized that there was a lot of the way I I work with life that I do that. And a lot of it was impeded by my lack of self-confidence in a lot of things. I'm trying not to get into psychoanalysis, (laughs) if I can help it. I remember. No. Um, But there comes a time in your life where all of a sudden you realize, you know, as long as you don't hurt anybody, You're not harming people. Mm -hmm. Um, If you ask me a question, I will tell you the answer. Mm -hmm. It may not be the answer that somebody might expect from a polite life or something Mm -hmm. like that, but I do try and keep it clean as much as possible. And also it would be something where I did not harm Mm -hmm. anybody or say something nasty to somebody about it.
1: Would you say that during that time in your life, listening to other people's stories kind of opened your eyes to that?
2: Oh yeah, oh yeah, it was beautiful. Um, That's always been the thing that I always found funny Mm -hmm. when I was growing up, and particularly when I got older and people were talking about being Mm storytellers. You know, and this this formalized group of people that present themselves as Mm storytellers and doing this. Well, the storytelling I grew up with, it could be something like I was driving the pickup truck down the deck road and I had a flat tire and I changed that tire and came on home. End of story. <laughs> that was a story.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Okay, it wasn't. maybe it was funny, maybe it wasn't. But these long, extended, evolved things... You know, we're, were not what you've got. Mm-hmm. But, but that was just as much a story to me mm-hmm. as say somebody talking about a trip they took to Orangeburg and some of the games that they would play over there. You know, so mm-hmm. that's, that's just kind of where I found it.
0: Can you tell us about your favorite story when you were a
2: child? That's deeply personal question. Uh, No, actually, I'm kidding. Um, Some of my favorite stories. We had little golden books, which were little tiny books that were drawn, were written especially from mothers or fathers to read to their children, and later the child would begin to do it. And I had several. Uh, It's really kind of funny. uh, You know, there was always one about. you know, uh, the nativity. There was you know, some songs, uh, some stories about that. Then you would get the kind of goofy Disney ones that might be about um, Song of the South like Brer Rabbit and stuff like that, some of the little mythology there. And that got blended in because 1951 and 1950, everybody's still decompressing from the fact we just won the war. So there was a lot of military imagery that went on as well, you know. And so, you know, you, you know, my father was in the military. He he was in the National Guard when I was born and so during that time you had a, you know a bunch of little warriors running around pretty much. So, you know, but I would say one of my favorite books honestly would have to be be something like that, like maybe the Little song about the, a little story about the nativity and the baby being born and all those people coming in. I was pretty favorite, and I think that was more because it was year round.
1: Did someone in your family read that book to you?
2: My mother primarily, but my dad would read it too Mm -hmm. sometimes. And uh, it got funny because, like I said, um, some of my extended family would tag team on it so that, you know, my grandmother might read it to me or. Mm find something else so there are always books around always
0: any other favorite story or book
2: this is going to sound morbid but the the story of king leonidas and the 300 spartans i should warn you but i mean i'm not sure when i started reading Mm -hmm. but that was one of the first stories i read we had these little collection of books mm-hmm. back then, and it would be fairy tales and historical songs, uh, stories like Horatio at the Gate and all that, but I remember the past at Thermopylae, and that one, you know, of course everybody dies at the end, it's kind of like Davy Crockett and the Alamo, but you know, you, I, I remember that, I remember that a lot, I remember reading that one several times.
1: Mm-hmm. How old were you
2: when you read that? Probably about six or seven years old. Mm-hmm. Before that, Disney had done a series mm-hmm. on Davy Crockett. And, of course, we watched The Wonderful World of Disney. And mm-hmm. every kid had a toy cap, coonskin cap, and all that kind of stuff. You know, it's it was what you did back then. So I had at least... A, but the past at Thermopylae was a whole different deal. You know, it was more the the greek and the ancient history stuff but uh, i got real interested in history and in biographies mm-hmm. you know particularly
0: did you remember how did you feel every time you read those stories or can you describe a little bit
2: well a lot of it was visualizing what was going on you know and of course when you're that age you're not talking gore and Arms chopping off and all that kind of stuff, or people getting blown up. What you're thinking about are heroic picture people fighting to the death. Okay, so when you visualize it, what I what I saw was examples of bravery and courage. You know, and then mean old those mean old Persians were coming around the corner, but you know, it, it was defending your homeland. And in the context of just coming out of World War II, I think it had a more of a resonance. A little bit later, when the centennial of the Civil War came along, um, there was a historian, uh, Bruce Catton, that wrote a three-volume history of the Civil War, um, very abbreviated, not giant volumes. And I, I was very, I was very much into that. Um, not so much like some people would call it the war of northern aggression uh but it was really it was really the civil war and it was a tragic thing that that people went through and families lost people but same time you're looking at things like cavalry charging and into the cannons and all that and again young kid and the standards were a lot different on tv so there was no gore, there was no blood,
3: mm-hmm.
2: even though I knew people around home that had come home from World War II, who were missing hunks of their body and arms and legs and stuff like that. But it, it, when you're doing it this other way, that's what you got. And the tel- television standards are very adamant about that. Uh, as a matter of fact, one of the first shows that ever showed blood and gore was um, CSI when Mm -hmm. it came on. And that was like Mm -hmm. the late 80s, early 90s. And that was when you started having the first standards of somebody going like that and, you know, the fountain. But anyway, that's kind of where I was. Did that help?
0: Yeah, I'm trying just to imagine how were your um, playtime and how you, if you did incorporate those stories into your playtime with did. your friends.
2: We did. Our friends, my friends, because we also were listening to television and having reruns of cowboy movies. And our cowboy movies were always inter- consen- interesting because it was never like cowboys and Indians. It was bad guys and good guys sort of thing. And we and we had descriptions for how we would play. We would get together, and if we were going to play with little toy soldiers or cowboys that was little we, you would play little if you were gonna play like grown up running around doing it that was called big okay. and actually I, I turned into a pretty good guerrilla warfare I found out <laughs> later that you know I could drop on them out of trees and stuff and they wouldn't get it but but it, it was not that much of a problem to translate um, because the friends I had were willing to at least listen to what I was looking at and doing. And we were all pretty in a similar, similar little range of people, Mm
0: -hmm. so. Any episode where you could remember somebody telling you a story that nurtured you, in your heart, some words maybe? that is stay with you until now?
3: Hmm.
2: You know, I think that the biggest thing that came out of that, and it was because it was being repeated to me by my relatives so much when I was coming up, and that was the fact that they would say, I love you, okay? And that came with a big hug and all that kind of stuff. And because of that, to this day, my sisters and I talk about this. We never had a day in our life where we doubted that our parents loved us. We never had a day in our life that way. And the whole family was like that. You never had a slight slightest doubt that you were not loved. And I would have to say that's something I carry. It
1: mm-hmm. Sounds like all those stories brought you together. With yeah. Not just your family, but all the the community around?
2: Well, my environment, mm-hmm. okay? I, I, I would not, you know, it's just that was my outlook and that was my approach and the way I interacted with people. Like I mentioned before, I was a pretty shy child except for maybe my three or four buddies that I knew. And um, also uh, I was asthmatic and that kind of cuts back on sometimes a lot of activity you know didn't stop me from playing football in the front yard with somebody however you know meant I might get to run 20 yards before I had to lie down Mm -hmm. you know or something but um, I do know that that had an impact as well that not being healthy was was a factor but from what I remember, it didn't get, it, get in the way of my friendship with my three or four friends that were all roughly my age.
0: However, you are a musician. How you deal with being shy and being in public, playing, and being there?
2: Well, you don't care. <laughs> you just don't care. No, actually what happened that cured the, 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 the shyness was that i was with that through college and now being a musician when i when i was in high school i played in the school band and they they had me as the drum major because i played a weird instrument didn't march well and it took me a whole season to do that nifty notebook strutting down the field thing which is a pretty big excitement for everybody when that happened uh but I I had to force myself to do that. And I was still very involved in stage fright and all that. When I started playing in a band, I was like that until one day I decided to turn up and turn around and there it is. The rest of my life, because when I started to work for state government, um, I wound up in this situation where I, all of a sudden I was having to talk with large groups of people and there were, and as that happened you know you sit there and you go well you can't be shy. you just have to walk up and say what's going on do what you're going to say you know and then deal with it as it goes along so that's pretty where where it got beaten out of me for the most part mm-hmm. uh, particularly when I became like a, a In charge of an office. Mm -hmm. So then I had to talk to the staff, I had to talk to the public, had to talk to crowds of people, had to talk to people I didn't want to talk to, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And what you have to do is just make sure that you do no harm, that you respect the person you're talking to and figuring out. If somebody's in there and they're upset, you have to find out what's What do they want? What is wrong? How can we help this? And it doesn't matter how mean they've been or what they've done. And, you know, let's just say people have been there that have done pretty heinous things. Um, You still have to try that. Um, On top of that, I have this really stupid blind spot, which is... um, you know, somebody can be sitting in the office with me and they have a gun, you know. I'm sitting there talking to them and it never crosses my mind that, you know, well, maybe I'm in danger. Maybe this guy's gonna shoot me. Maybe so and is gonna hit me with a knife or da-da-da. I never worried about that.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Then maybe two hours later you go, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, think, I think that's where the shyness worked away. Mm-hmm. The music helped it a lot uh, to the point where they had to finally figure out ways to shut me up <laughs> between songs and stuff.
0: Do you remember any song from your childhood?
2: You and I talked about this. My On, Saturday, on Sundays this was we would get in a car and go for a ride. It would be a family trip. Me and my sister and my mom and dad. And we'd just go riding around. There was no set goal. We may wind up at a grandparent's house, we may not. But we didn't turn on the radio. What we did is we rode around, we'd look and all that. And then my father would have this song, uh, and it basically was The Bear Went Over the Mountain. And we just said the same thing over and over again. You know, the bear went over the mountain to see what he could see. All he could see was a polecat climbing up a tree. And somebody asked me one day, what's a polecat? I said, it's the one that climbs up the tree. You know, I mean... But that's one I remember a lot of. Uh, my father had been stationed in England during, the, during World War II and he had a couple of English hall songs, I think. you know, And they would have lines in them like, there was a Mr. McGator who used to sing in a the theater. Poor little thing started to sing, got hit with a rotten tomato. La 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 la. So there's a lot of that that stays with us. Even did now.
1: those did those things um, influence you as you started performing and making your own music later on?
2: Yes, it did. Yes, it did. I would have to say it did, because when I started going with guitar, mm-hmm. which was not until I was a freshman in college, I was lucky to have a couple of really good... I had a roommate that played in a band back home, and he was showing me the electric ropes, and I had another fellow that I met on the... Horseshoe over there and he was doing the folk and blues stuff and what I was doing was folk and blues you know or f- doing folk music there so it it translated it, it really rang there was a resonance there with me but as I mentioned a vet earlier the guitar didn't reach out and want to grab me too much maybe until well the Beatles and then mm-hmm. you know you kind of want one then but but that's that's pretty much where it went.
1: Are there any artists from your past that have influenced you that we could add a link to so our listeners could uh, listen to it themselves?
2: Well, if you want to know the truth, mm-hmm. one of the great links that you can have is Pete Seeger. Okay, Pete Seeger back in the late fifties, early sixties actually had a little television show. Mm-hmm. And which he brought in different musicians and stuff. Now, one of the musicians he brought in, who was a mind blower, was a guy named, uh, he was Reverend Gary Davis. Okay, Reverend Gary Davis was born in Lawrence, right here in the state. He's one of, one of the founders of a Piedmont style of ragtime guitar. And Reverend Gary was like a lot of them, where you bounce between the sacred and the secular. But he was a street musician, and what that meant, a lot of people got mixed up. Is that street musicians play anything? You know, they may call so and so a blues musician, but that's the record company telling them what songs to. Rep- he could do Cole Porter just as well, you know. So. That would be a link I would think about, with him and maybe a couple other people, but it's an Mm eye-opener. You know, oddly enough, if you go on YouTube links, there's a whole bunch of shows that used to come on Saturday afternoons. They were little half-hour shows and they were country music shows. And there would be various country acts or bluegrass musicians or something like that. And that was pretty fascinating to watch. Mm -hmm. I was never real good with something that was a little bit, if it was a little bit too saccharine, it got me.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: How much is that doggy in the window? I'm sorry, I did not like that song until there was a country duo called, uh, Homer and Jethro did a version of it called, How Much Is That Hound Dog in the Window? It's a much better version.
0: Did what? you see any connections between your early
2: readings mm-hmm. in your current life? Yeah. Yeah, I do as a matter of fact, because what happens is is that as you read books and you listen to stories, you begin to live a story. And um, you you know, it's not like I'm walking down saying, I'm walking down the road now. <laughs> this is a great adventure. But your, your view of your life and your interaction with other people is going to be more in the context of a story happening or an event happening. So it's actually historical a historical thing as well as fiction or human interaction or whatever you want to call it. So I, I think it's a definite link. I think that's why I wound up wanting to be an archaeologist first and getting a degree in anthropology and all. Because that's that's what I was able to connect, just to see that going on.
0: Those stories did help you to overcome obstacles in your life later on as an adult?
2: You know, I, I think what helped me more then would been probably, and this, I, don't, I don't want this to sound pretentious when I say this, okay? Part of it is, is letting go of how important I am. Or that entertaining the possibility I could mess up. That was also a side effect of being a beloved child. So what you have to do is to be able to cope with the idea that you are gonna make a mistake and do something. Um, Did these stories help? Uh, Some of this stuff, Like I said, the next steps in was in the elementary school. I read all the biographies in the library, and and even worse, as I read the encyclopedia, the encyclopedia when I was eight or nine. It's not. Oh, anyway, the but a lot of it was the search for meaning. And when I say that, it's real funny. We went to church all the time, a lot of church. Um, And it was a spiritual issue. And it wasn't just, you know, you could watch the way people behaved and what the teachings say. So then all of a sudden I'm reading about Buddhism and Hinduism and dog and catism and whatever. So... You know, so I would say it's that more of the fact of trying to understand the nature of the human being.
0: If you have anything to tell to kids. Well we never mentioned that you would actually teach people music.
2: Well, yeah, that's what I've been doing for the last 15 years or so is Mm -hmm. working in a music store. and Mm -hmm. We teach folks how to play instruments. Mm -hmm. What music store do you work at? It's uh, one in Sumter called Leonard's okay. Leonard's mm-hmm. Music, five seventy-seven Boltman <laughs> Drive. And uh, you know, and what that comes down to is, is I'm not a strict teacher, and there are no wrong notes. And I encourage people to find their voice. If we go in and they want to learn banjo, it's not like I sit down and say you have to use this particular style. It's good to have it as a tool, but the bottom line is about telling the song, telling the story, mm-hmm. and that's something mm-hmm. that you know from our, our friends, Mr. Bolt and Mr. Laboon up in Pickens, that, mm-hmm. that many a big many part years of ago. <laughs>
3: yes.
2: And um, so that's that's a big part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, what what I would suggest to anybody that's listening to this is just that: listen. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it sounds like the awareness of your own story and where that fits in, and the bigger picture, is what gives you that ability to, you know, well, relate to people and see things from their perspectives. And, and, learn and
2: from them. I I'm I'm not going to be one of those going to talk about the mm-hmm. evils of technology mm-hmm. because, at the same time, I was watching TV and doing all these reading and stuff like that. That was viewed as evils of technology mm-hmm. as well. Okay? You know, you could be outside eight hours a day instead of five or mm-hmm. something. Why are you in there watching TV? <laughs> anyway. But what I would encourage to students or to anybody really is just listen. It's attending to the minute. It's not attending to whether or not your cell phone's giving you a text message or something. Um, it may mean slow down a little bit, okay? Um, Maybe find out from your parents or your caregivers or whatever. You know, find out about your family. See what stories there are, you know. And if it turns out there's not too much of a story going on, it's okay you can start working on yours and I would suggest maybe teachers that look at the concept of active listening and see if you can apply that in some way and I believe that teachers can make an example with that political statement coming up if they're allowed to okay but that's That's pretty much what I would suggest.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you. Thank you for being with us today for sharing your personal story, your memories from childhood, the books that you read, and and giving us all this wonderful description.
2: Well, it was all untrue. I just made it all up just sitting <laughs> here and uh, no, actually. Thank you very much for letting me come. Uh, Like I said, the stuff that you sent me with these types of questions really generated a lot of thought for Mm -hmm. me and helped me crystallize a lot of Mm -hmm. issues and ideas. So I appreciate what your project is and what you guys are doing very much. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank
0: you.
1: And thank you to our listeners. You can find Bibli Observatory on Podbean, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio or add us on your favorite podcast app. Our podcast website address is libraryvoices.podbean.com. We love hearing from our listeners, so send us your comments and suggestions for future episodes.
0: Biblio Observatory is a collaborative literacy initiative to connect our communities and children with the joy of listening, reading, and writing those memories from childhood that changed our lives. Thank you for listening.